This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. We're going through the series called Stand Firm in Grace. And my, do we need the power of the Holy Spirit to stand firm in grace in these times. Our scripture passage is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 till the end of the chapter. And you'll see the words over my shoulder. Although I strongly encourage you to, to turn in or to turn on your Bible so you can follow along as we listen to what the Lord has to say to us together this afternoon. Listen to the word of the Lord, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I don't, think, I don't know how things are in your home country, how you would analyze the spiritual state of whatever, whatever is stamped on your passport, but many of us feel an ominous shadow spreading over our lands. And this is a time for most of us to be preparing ourselves for increasing opposition and marginalization. As Christians, 
lose their positions of cultural influence, if indeed we even had any in our lands, and are moved to the outside. And there are really two reactions that Christians tend to have. One reaction is a kind of grace without courage. It's not truly grace, but grace that is misinterpreted as surrendering every historic doctrine that might be offensive, apologizing for whatever we can, and retreating and surrendering and, in effect, bowing down before the forces of evil. Grace in quotation marks. Grace without courage. And the reason it is not truly grace is because there's no longer any word of hope and love and forgiveness of God in that message anymore. There is no confrontation that the gospel always brings. Grace without courage. The other extreme, of course, is exactly the opposite. Courage without grace. There's really a fight or flight response that people tend to have when fearful things happen. Grace without courage is the flight response. But some people, when they're cornered, respond with their claws outward. And Christians in some countries, perhaps your own, respond in their fear of losing cultural power with great anger and even rage. And they speak out, they speak out boldly. They speak out very strongly, perhaps far more strongly than they should, but there's no grace at all in what they say. It's about ridiculing and putting down those of whom they are deeply afraid. Two false reactions, grace without courage and courage without grace. And Jesus calls us always to speak grace with courage. Grace and courage together. And this is the fine line we must walk following the Holy Spirit. And only when we speak words of grace with courage can we expect the power of God to move in this world. Now, this habit of speaking and acting and relating begins here in the church of God, in the family of God's people, because Peter begins in verse 8 talking about having brotherly love among yourselves. Finally, all of you, without exception, this applies to every single person here and in the church of God, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I saw a video on Reddit this week of a couple of gazelles that were fighting in the middle of the savanna. And there was a whole herd of them in the foreground watching this happen. The gazelles were in the middle ground, smashing their heads against each other. And then you saw the watching gazelles perk up, and you could start to see a lion in the background loping towards these two fighting gazelles who were completely unaware of the destruction that was coming towards them. And how foolish, and indeed how suicidal of the people of God to be butting our heads against each other when evil approaches. In northern Canada, there are these wonderful creatures called musk oxen, these great hairy, shaggy creatures, and their hindquarters are very tender and defenseless. And so what they do when a pack of arctic wolves surround them is they back into a circle 
with the young ones inside and they lower their massive horns so there's no way for these wolves to come in and slaughter those who are weak. And that is a picture of what the church of God ought to be. This congregation and every gathering of the people of God should be a safe haven where all of God's children feel love and grace and affirmation and support. And man, so many churches have been torn apart by the very opposite of these qualities. And I bet many of us here have endured not just once, but perhaps even multiple times going through horrific church splits. But it all begins, these practices of love and grace and courage all begin in the church of God. This is like our spiritual gym. This is very theoretical because I don't go to the gym at all, but I have read about gyms in books. <laughs> and from what I'm told, you know, in the gym, you're, you're gradually building up your strength and you're toning your muscles and you're practicing so that when strength is called upon you in the real world, you'll have something to draw back on. And it's here in the church that this ought to be a safe place where we're building up one another so that we can be strong in God so that when we do face opposition, the opposition is an opposition we're ready for. And may that demonic opposition be coming from outside the church and not within it. A couple things I want you to notice. I'm not going to go through these qualities in great, great detail. One is this. These are all character qualities. All of these things begin in our hearts. Before, it's a list of behaviors or a checklist of actions. It is our hearts being changed toward each other. And the center of it all is brotherly love. In fact, Peter is using terms that the Greeks and Romans would have reserved only for their family relationships, which were deeply important in that culture, as they are in many cultures around the world. And Peter's taking these family qualities and transferring it to unrelated people, perhaps of different ethnicities and clans, because we are God's new family. And in families, you know, we all have arguments. Things are a little messy behind closed doors. But at the end of the day, we are family. And you don't just pick up and move to a new household when you're sick of the people around, around you. You stick it through. And it's so important for all of us not to treat the church of God as kind of a shopping mall, and if our own needs aren't getting met or if someone offends us, we just pack up and move on to the next place. We're family, so we press through and deal with that stuff so we can enjoy the grace of God together. So it begins with loving the family of believers, but then it quickly moves on beyond that because Peter starts speaking of not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling means cursing, insults verbally being spat upon. And I'm sure I, there's probably some strange tastes here, but none of us enjoys being reviled and insulted. And it is disturbing to see in the Christian world, um, many Christians seem to be very tired of being a punching bag. And they begin to respond in kind. And if you're on social media, which... I generally advise you don't waste your time on there, even following Christians, because it is, it is deeply sad to see how many Christians are just piling on and insulting and saying horrible things to one another and to non-Christians. Because you know what? To a lot of people, 
Grace seems like weakness. Grace seems like a path for losing. And we want to win. We want to win. Because you know what? It feels really good to punch someone in the face. It feels really good to put a smackdown on Twitter. But that is not the way of Jesus and not the way the church should respond. And of course, not responding with evil and reviling is costly. It costs you to bite your tongue. And in the world of Peter's readers, insulting was really an art form. People practiced this because it was a way of protecting your social status. If someone threatened everything you and your family had built up, you could respond in kind so you could keep your standing. And not responding in kind is allowing yourself to slide down the social ladder just like Jesus did. But we're not just called to be passive and bite our tongues and say nothing. The call of Jesus is even higher than that because Peter says, but on the contrary, bless. Those are words you speak and they're words of invoking God's favor on someone, on someone that hates you and has insulted you. Warren Wearsby says that to repay evil for good is demonic. To repay good for good or evil for evil is... But to repay good for evil is truly divine. And of course, Jesus Christ is the supreme example of this, isn't he? He came to this earth to bless his enemies, including us, by dying on the cross for our sins. You know, I could share some very exotic stories of saints and martyrs who in prison turned their persecutors to Christ by, by um, you know, speaking words of blessing over them. And those are remarkable, stirring stories. But I felt convicted today, uh, preparing this message, on something in my own life and in my own past. I went to a Christian school, elementary school, and I'm sorry to tell you it was a really bad experience because I was severely bullied from about grade three to grade six. And there are a couple boys, and there was one in particular, his name was Brian, and he just enjoyed walking by me and smashing my head against the concrete wall or rolling me in a puddle, or this went on for years and years, and the principals and teachers were totally unaware. I Googled his name a few years ago and discovered that him and his family had left the church, left the faith, and he is now you know, an outspoken atheist online. And I did not feel sorry to hear this. Because now he's not just my enemy, he's, he's God's enemy. And today I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit, you need to begin praying for this person. Pray blessing on his head. Because you know what? He was an arrogant jerk, and he was mean and cruel, and a sinner who deserves God's judgment. And I am a sinner who deserves God's judgment, who can also be mean and cruel in my own way. And coming alongside him as a sinner who also needs God's word of blessing is what it means to follow Jesus. And if we refuse to do that, we are cutting ourselves off from forgiveness and blessing. And this is the calling of God on our lives, Peter said. Just like Abraham 
was called and blessed by God to be a blessing for the nations, we are called to bless the nations. Not just the nice ones, not just the respectful ones, not just the ones that are seeking after Jesus, but everybody. We're called and commissioned by God for words of life and blessing to come out of our mouth. And man, we are talking about stuff that cannot be achieved by the flesh whatsoever. I mean, when you seriously come up against someone who has done you wrong, this is an awesome work of the Holy Spirit. And this kind of grace takes strength. This is not evidence of weakness, speaking blessing over someone. This is supernatural grace from God. And then Peter goes on in verse 10 to quote from Psalm 34, this, this, these several verses here, 10 to 12, a psalm which he has quoted more than once in his letter. A psalm, incidentally, of David, that David wrote when he was standing before this Philistine king, Abimelech. He was feeling threatened. He feigned insanity, and God delivered him. He was not arrested and executed. And he writes the psalm of praise and thanks for the deliverance of God. And the important thing to note from this psalm is this, that God watches over and protects the righteous, but his face is against those who do evil. And this is not about us versus them. This is about my own evil and the way I behave. Am I doing and especially am I speaking evil, death-dealing words? Then I can expect that God's face is going to be against me. And you do not want to be opposed by God. But if I am acting and speaking righteously, I can expect and trust that God is watching over me. He's looking out for me. He is protecting me and he will save me from whatever may come against me. And it's important to understand the background of that psalm as we get into verse 13, because it seems very counterintuitive what we might read Peter as saying. Now, who is there to harm you if you're eager to do what is good? And his audience might have responded, yes, plenty of people. Now, Peter is not saying, you know what? If you're just a nice person and do the right thing, you're going to be totally okay. In fact, the whole letter is written to people who are doing the right thing and they're being mocked and ridiculed and persecuted for it. I think what he's saying is in line with what Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is watching over me, then who really can do me lasting harm? There's a very odd thing that Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. He, says, he said to his disciples, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Sounds very much like the situation of Peter's audience. But, not a hair of your head will perish. Some of you will be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. Jesus is not talking nonsense. He's saying that even if they take your life, that very life is held in the hands of God and he will restore it to you far better than you ever enjoyed at the resurrection. People can only harm you temporarily what they take from you will be given back to you a hundredfold is the promise of the gospel. And therefore, even if you suffer, and there's always this possibility lurking in the background in First Peter, you might be 
living in your little town and everything's fine, everyone's treating you well, there's always a sense of insecurity that one day my vulnerability is going to cost me and they will turn against me. And even if this happens, Peter says, you will be blessed. There's a beatitude here for those who are persecuted. You will be blessed. God is going to invoke his favor on you. And then Peter goes on. It's not evident in most translations, but he's quoting and adapting from Isaiah chapter 8. I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through this letter, it's just thick with Old Testament quotations. It's really a set of Old Testament quotations woven together with some commentary by Peter. Turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 8 if you have your Bible. Because it's very interesting what's going on here. Let me set up the situation for you. Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz of Judah. And Judah is under threat by the kingdom of Israel in the north, their ally Syria, and in behind them, this looming superpower of Assyria. So Ahaz is scrambling. He's making these alliances. He's trying to deal with all this stuff by human strategies in the flesh. And God says to Isaiah, for the Lord, uh, verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He who fears the awesome power of the Lord God of hosts need fear nothing else. What is astounding about this quotation is that Peter takes it and he applies it to Jesus. Here's Isaiah speaking. You need to be in dread of Yahweh, the God of the covenant, who fills the temple with smoke and with fire. Set him aside as holy in your hearts. And now Peter's saying, honor, set apart Jesus as Lord in your hearts. Fear him. Now, if the image of Jesus that comes into your mind is someone with blonde ringlets falling down his shoulder with a little child in his arm wearing a blue robe with a white robe with a blue fringe that he always seemed to wear, according to all the Jesus picture Bibles, if he's just this kind and gentle savior and nothing more, you're not going to understand the force of this. Jesus is someone of whom we all ought to be awfully afraid It's a joyful fear and a fearful joy, but there should be a holy terror before the awesomeness of Christ. Jesus is going to come on a white horse with a sword out of his mouth, his robes dipped in blood. He is coming as the conqueror of everything, and he has been exalted at the right hand of God, and he rules as Lord over all the universe, nothing whatsoever accepted. This is not about enthroning Jesus merely as the personal Lord in my little heart, but bowing before him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what it means to set Jesus apart as Lord in your heart. The antidote to fear is having a bigger vision of Jesus. 
your Jesus is too small. That goes for all of us because no one in this room has anything close to an adequate realization of the glory and awesomeness and power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And if we were truly given a vision of the ascended and exalted Jesus, we would fall at his feet as though dead. And the fear, the holy, delicious, and joyful fear of Jesus would cause all other fear to melt away. And therefore, with this holy fear of Jesus in our hearts, we need to be prepared, Peter says, and ready to give an answer, to give a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that's within us. Here is one of the positive things about times of suffering and opposition and persecution for the church. It creates the possibility of mission in a way you wouldn't otherwise experience. When things are going well and our lives and our possibilities seem indistinguishable from those around us, when we're not called really to make any deep sacrifice, there's no reason for anyone to ask, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? You could live your whole life and no one would ask you. But when you begin saying no to things, when you start sliding down the social ladder, when you with joy allow your, your property to be confiscated and endure the threat of going to prison, that creates questions for people. Why on earth would this person make such a massive sacrifice? It means, too, that we cannot give in to the temptation of closing ourselves off as the church in times of difficulty. It would be a lot easier for us all to move up to the mountains and have a commune together with huge gates that no one else is allowed to come in. But Peter is pushing the church towards mission. These, like us, need to hear the word of the gospel. And so we need to be ready to prepare ourselves to be able to articulate in some way why we believe what we believe. Our hope is not just hanging in the air somewhere. It's based on something, and that something is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this doesn't mean we all need training as professional apologists, that we need to be ready to answer every possible philosophical question and with a few flicks of the wrist to instantly disarm anyone with questions or opposing ideas. It does mean that we should all be able to say, here is why I have decided to follow Jesus. And if we can't think of any reason, that calls into question the depth of our own discipleship, doesn't it? Now, Peter emphasizes immediately, this needs to be done with gentleness and respect. Be ready with the reason, but before you get ahead of yourselves, gentleness and respect. You know, I believe that those two qualities come out of confidence. If you are full of fear, you're going to have nothing in the tank to answer someone with gentleness and respect. That cornered animal is just desperately trying to defend itself from a threat, which is all you're going to feel. Threat, threat, threat. Unless you feel the massive, gigantic lordship of Jesus over with you, over you. Grace comes from courage. Grace comes from courage. 
I'm full of fear and self-defensiveness. I'm not going to be able to speak with courage or grace. You know, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to all of us because it names us as what we are, sinners before a holy God. We're not called to withhold that offense from people. But may that be the only offense that people hear. And may our own lives and our own demeanor, our rudeness and offensiveness not be something that gets between people and Jesus. What a shame that would be. Now, the whole point of all this, what our eye is really on when we're giving an explanation for our faith is not so much on that person, but on God at all times so that we can have a good conscience before a watching God, Peter says. That explanation of the gospel is done before a holy God and is an act of worship and submission to him. And what our eye is on is God who's going to judge all of us, including me, for the way that I speak. And with our eye on judgment, we can expect that those who oppose and insult us now, if they do not come to faith themselves, are going to be put to shame before God and experience themselves what it means to hear God's no over those who said no to God and his people their entire lives. And Peter concludes his section with this statement in verse 17. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If it should be God's will. It might well be God's will for you to endure some suffering in this life. That's up to God. The question is, are we so resolved? Have we determined in our own hearts, do you know what, Bart? It's better to suffer for doing good now than for doing evil and have our suffering later on. That's the resolution we all need to make. Okay, let's move on to this very strange and bizarre last section of our passage, which hopefully piqued your interest. You know, Martin Luther, who had an opinion about literally everything, came to this text and he's like, this is really obscure and I honestly don't know what Peter is talking about. Fools rush in though, where angels fear to dread. So let's see what God has to say to us in this. Because I think it's deeply encouraging. Grace and courage we've been talking about. And both those qualities are anchored in what Christ has done for us. Beginning with what's clear in this passage. It's actually a wonderful, simple summary of the gospel. Well worth memorizing. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's where the grace comes from. Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous is Jesus. The unrighteous is me. And when I'm tempted to respond gracelessly to people, to respond with insult and contempt, I need the Holy Spirit to remind me, Bart, you were the unrighteous. And Jesus died for you. That's when we meditate on our status before God without Jesus as sinners and our new status as God's adopted children, we realize we're living in grace all the time ourselves and therefore let it well up from our own experience so that we can give it to others. That's where the grace comes from. Here's where the courage comes from. Jesus triumphing over all the forces 
of evil. And here's where we get into the sticky bits. And tempted as I am to embark on an hour and a half of academic discussion, let me just cut through all this very quickly. Um, Jesus, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Made alive means the resurrection. That's only what it can refer to. This cannot be speaking about some journey that Jesus made in the three days between his death and his resurrection. This is when Jesus was made alive. And uh, many translations, I think properly, capitalize spirit. Jesus was made alive in or by the spirit as at his resurrection. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Proclaimed is not the usual New Testament word for preaching or sharing the gospel. This is not necessarily about Jesus going to the realm of the dead to offer people a second chance. I believe this is about Jesus announcing something as a herald. And what he's announcing is his victory at the cross. Because spirits, the spirits in prison, spirits in the New Testament, 99% of the time are not referring to people, but to angels. Here, particularly fallen angels or demons. Jesus is going after his resurrection and proclaiming and announcing his victory over all the powers of evil that thought that they had defeated him and now find themselves defeated. And these spirits, Peter's pulling out what for us would be a very obscure Old Testament reference, but in fact was quite well known in the Judaism of that day, from Genesis chapter 6, where it speaks of the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. And in Jewish tradition, this was strongly believed to be angels intermarrying with humans. And there is a very long book about Enoch and the Watchers that is, they didn't have LSD back then, but you might wonder at reading this book. All sorts of very strange stuff. But there was this well-known tradition of angels coming down to earth outside of their assigned area, intermarrying and interfering with human affairs and God, putting them in some kind of prison and in chains. And here Jesus is going to these imprisoned spirits and announcing his victory. Now, actually, Noah has a great deal of relevance for our situation. He was the most well-known Old Testament character in this part of the world, first of all. But Noah was in the situation of being one of just a few righteous. Only eight righteous people surrounded by a hostile and reviling and ridiculing world. And there's some sympathetic feeling between this situation and Peter's audience's situation. Don't be discouraged no matter how few you are and how strong the forces that oppose you, God saves. And the waters of the flood were the means of the rescue of God's people at this time, just like baptism. Now, Peter says baptism saves. Very clearly, he goes on to say, it's not the outward washing of water. Don't look to the externals. Baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you were baptized, whenever it was, you were mysteriously participating in the very resurrection of Jesus. That's how baptism saves, only because it connects you to the risen Jesus. And when you were baptized, you made an appeal or perhaps a pledge to God for of a good conscience. I think Peter's getting at this. When you were baptized, you said to God in your public act of baptism, I have decided to follow Jesus, in the power of his risen life, by 
the Spirit. I've made this commitment, and now I want to follow him for the rest of my life. And then, living this life with Jesus, we follow him as the one who ascended to the right hand of God. And now every angel, every authority, and every power has been subjected to Jesus, including whatever shadowy, malevolent forces are behind those who oppose you. They are all under the feet of Jesus. All of them. Jesus is absolutely supreme over all evil forces. When we recognize the lordship of Jesus in this way, this gives us courage because we're following Jesus who is Lord over everything and therefore we are totally, totally safe in him. Do you know what? None of us knows what the pledge of our baptism might require. We have all vowed to follow Jesus whatever the cost and God very wisely does not reveal what that cost is going to be at the time. But we belong to King Jesus. And we're following Jesus along his path, the cross now, but certainly the cross and victory ahead of us. We need grace to find courage, and we need courage to show, show grace. This is what God's calling us to, so let's bow our heads and pray together that he would form our characters into these kinds of people. Heavenly Father, we bow before your Son in his absolute lordship and supremacy. We rejoice that the one who is our Savior is also not just our Lord, but the Lord of everything in heaven above, on earth below, even the regions under the earth. Everything has been subjected to him. May our own hearts holding Jesus high as Lord. Be hearts that are full of your grace, O Lord. Grace received and grace expressed. And may there be hearts that are full of courage that in whatever dark times you call us through, we would be faithful not just to preserve ourselves but to preach the glorious word of the gospel to a dying world. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Let's stand now and... This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.